Does anyone have a match? I use a lighter. Better still. Until they go wrong. Exactly. And now that we've established your security clearance, it's time to start another episode of Dorkfest. The podcast. We are so excited to have you all with us for another of our deep dive style episodes where we we will be gazing through Q's infrared telescopic sight and focusing in on the world of secret agent 007. Freemuth. Josh Freemuth is my name and joining me as always are the dorks. First of all, we have head of station B Baltimore, my cousin Gabe Freemuth. England, Josh. For England, Gabe. Or for me. It depends on what part of the movie we're watching. Also on the line via Major Boothroyd's latest radio technology is my brother Dan Freemuth. You mind if my friend sits this one out? She's just dead. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, I always thought J was just a randomly assigned letter, but turns out it stands for Jordan Freemuth. Never joke about my dork fests. Never, Jay. I would, certainly not on the firm's time. Uh, before getting to our mission briefing from M, I thought we would engage in some customary byplay with a warm-up question. And in honor of Professor Dent finishing up his remote learning assignment and heading for summer vacay in Crab Key, I wanted to talk to the dorks about some of the exotic destinations that we see in James Bond movies. And so our warm-up question for this podcast episode is this what is your favorite james bond destination as a vacation destination if you're going on vacation to one of the exotic places that bond goes to where would you pick gabe you're up first so maybe i thought about this a little backwards but honestly what first occurred to me when you uh, asked the question was, I mean, if I can go anywhere that's in the Bond world, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't spend some time in one of the villain layers as though it was some sort of, you know, Airbnb kind of a thing, you know, where you, you can just get, you can go to Crab Key, uh, you can go to, you know, uh, Dr. No's Island, and just sort of hang out there for a little while, you know, enjoy some Ken Adam uh, scene design and production design and all that kind of stuff. But and if of those, I think on, I would probably want to just take a week in space. I think I'm going to, to Drax's space station. Uh, and I think I'm just watching the earth turn by for a week, you know, get a little bit, get a little bit of both. I've always wanted to, you know, that if I've got one hope, it's to see space before I die. And it would, uh, that would be a nice way, you know, kill two birds with one stone, get a little bit of space action, get some bond action, see the world. Take me around the world one more time, Gabe. Uh, I'm going to select the hotel that Bond stays at in Lisbon in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I mean, that place really just has everything that I'm looking for. Big pool, casino, beach nearby, and Bond's carrying golf clubs on his way, uh, on his way out the door. So it's clear that there's uh, golf available nearby. So that's where I'm headed. Uh, Jordan, how about you? Uh, so when I was thinking about this question, I, I, I will say the, the term exotic destination, that, that, that threw me a little bit because that, you know, I, I thought briefly, like, maybe I'd think about the joy boat um, from Dr. No, maybe just hanging out there, getting some good, good, getting some good food, listening to some good music. Um, but ultimately, I moved away from that. And instead, I am going to kind of like Gabe rent 
Airbnb style, the, the Skyfall mansion or the Skyfall farm or whatever we call there for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I've always wanted to go to Scotland anyway. So to Gabe's point, killing two birds with one stone, I think that's a good idea. An additional reason, I actually just thought of a third one, get to hang out with Kincaid. I mean, he's got to have some good, some, some good, some good drink uh, available, some, some, good, some good time. And then also, I would just like the opportunity to steal Bond's hunting jacket that he wears in that. I, I've always thought that's just very stylish. Um, so, you know, I'd stay there for a little while, but then accidentally pack that in my suitcase as I return back home. Your beard would fit right in, Jay. I do think it should be considered that it's probably also conceivable that that jacket looks good because it's on Daniel Craig. Conceivable, (laughs) but I think I could pull it off too. No question there. No question there. Dan, bring us home. I'm going to go with a far more realistic choice outside of the uh, Dr. No grab key lair and the Skyfall uh, Bond residence that doesn't actually exist in uh, Glencoe, Scotland. I'm going to say Istanbul, Turkey. I've never been to Turkey. Istanbul is featured in three different Bond films, of course, most memorably in From Russia with Love. Where the moonlight on the Bosphorus is irresistible. Exactly. Come on now. But the biggest reason is not only do I get to enjoy Istanbul, the city, but then when I'm ready to leave, I can fulfill my dream of riding the Orient Express to Paris so I can get all dolled up. Train travel is the best way to travel. So I can spend time in Istanbul, then take the Orient Express to Paris, basically kill two birds with one stone that way. You do have to watch out in in your train travels, though. There are always henchmen lurking around every corner. So just be sure to have all your gadgets ready and keep an eye out. Yeah, don't worry. I've got uh, the gold sovereigns and I've got the uh, flat throwing knife at the ready. And I also have already spoken uh, to the maitre d' and have told him that no matter how many libations I enjoy, do not allow me to order red wine with fish. Always sends the wrong message. Exactly what I was looking for there, dorks. The Bond references flowing as as freely as Red Grant's uh, Chianti. Um, But now I'm afraid it's time to get a little more serious and proceed with some new business. Uh, perhaps the most ambitious that Dorkfest the podcast has ever undertaken. Now, it's pretty easy to love a great movie, but part of what makes us dorks is how we have embraced the flaws of these franchises that we love. Perhaps none more so than James Bond. These films are seldom cinematic masterpieces, but they have wormed their way into our hearts and minds despite the fact that we should perhaps know better. We've made the choice to overlook their sometimes numerous weaknesses because there's something fun about them that keeps us coming back. Today, our mission, to identify that certain something and enshrine four films into what I'm calling the Dorkfest Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. These will not be the best Bond movies, but they will also not be the worst. They're going to be movies that can reasonably be described as bad, even by the people like us, who actually enjoy watching them. We'll be making the case for why these movies are enjoyable and also poking some fun at some of the more embarrassing moments in them and being downright critical of the, some of the more offensive 
moments, which crop up in these Bond movies from time to time, as we well know. So our one point question, and Dan, uh, be, be a helpful chap and get us started on this one. Uh, what are some of the common flaws in James Bond movies? So unfortunately, when looking at common flaws in James Bond movies, there's quite a bit of meat on this bone. So you don't have to look very far. <laughs> right. I don't need any of Q's gadgets to, uh, to sniff out many flaws because there are a plethora. But I'll, I'll try and kind of focus in on a few right out of the shoot. The, the first one that certainly hits home for me, as I'm sure it does many others, is I guess what we'll call an aging bond. And this is basically when an actor, be it Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan, basically they have outlasted the time in which it appears that they could feasibly be James Bond. Sean Connery in 1962, at 32 years young, he is a dapper Bond in Dr. No. And he's a little more mature by the time he gets to Goldfinger and Thunderball and still believable in You Only Live Twice. But boy, those eyebrows are real bushy in Diamonds Are Forever and Come Never Say Never Again time. It's really implausible to consider Sean Connery as James Bond. In fact, it's only a few years after the release of Never Say Never Again that Sean Connery makes the personal physical transformation to the bald facial hair Sean Connery in the likes of The Man Who Would Be King and The Lion in Winter only a few years later. Or excuse me, that was after, that was after Diamonds Are Forever. So he even has to revert back to the old look, um, which just goes to tell you that just a little too old to pass off as a realistic James Bond. And no actor more guilty of this than Roger Moore. For Your Eyes Only was supposed to be Roger Moore's final Bond movie. And even in that film, he's looking a little ragged. He still can sort of pull it off. But by the time we get to Octopussy, and in particular, A View to a Kill, when Roger Moore is 57 years old, it becomes really hard to take this so-called super spy seriously. And unfortunately, the movies have to kind of play to the physical abilities of those actors, and it really does start to limit the kind of things that they can do from a stunt standpoint, from an action sequence standpoint. And so I think the aging Bond idea is something that really becomes a noticeable flaw as these actors get a little longer in the team. Jumping to the to the other side of the the, the characters, you know, I, I feel like another common flaw in a lot of James Bond films is the you know what we might call our car, our, our cartoonish or just uh, like a, a a simple villain, a villain that lacks complexity. And you know, this I kind of think goes back to some of the conversations that we've had in some past episodes of Dorkfest, the podcast, where we talked about you know whether or not the villain is something that defines a franchise or enhances the franchise or extends the franchise as it were. And James Bond, I think is a good example of a franchise where at its, maybe not at its worst, but at its least good, uh, you have villains that are not enhancing the franchise. They're, they're lacking complexity. Um, some that immediately come to mind, you have Max Zorin from A View to a Kill, you have Francisco Scaramanga in, in The Man with the Golden Gun, um, you have Willard White, who is 
not even really a villain, but is made to be a villain and, and is very cartoonish in that sense. You have Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid, who, you know, while James Bond may have been paving the way a little bit with having a homosexual pair of henchmen, the fact of the matter still is that they were a bit cartoonish in the way that they were presented. And that was, and that was in part on purpose with that specific example. Uh, but I think that cartoonish villain is one example, you know, sort of on the flip side of, of the aging Bond that is a common flaw popping up in a lot of these Bond, in a lot of these bad Bond movies. As far as the villains go, Jay, I think the, the cartoonish and the simple are, are almost two different sins that Bond villains commit. Like I was thinking of Max Zorin as a cartoonish villain. I mean, this is Christopher Walken. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be calling on Gabe to do some Chris Walken impersonations here in a minute, but this is Walken just feeling it for two hours. I mean, every single instinct that he has as an actor, he's given it a shot and it somehow ended up on the final product of this movie. Or maybe it didn't, which could have been even even more dramatic. You know, and they, they, they make him this product of Nazi genetic engineering. Uh, he's a psychopath. He's a tech entrepreneur. Like, like in terms of being cartoonish, they just make him so many things. They almost make him too complex. But then you also have Francisco Scaramanga, as you say, Jordan, who is that simple villain who is just, I kill for money. I only kill in one way with one weapon. And it only takes me one shot to do it. And this is all I ever do. Um, and so I think that's kind of t two sides of where Bond movies miss the mark with their villains. I mean, I, you're exactly right, Josh. That Scaramanga is a great example of a villain who is both simple and, and simple is not necessarily bad. In that instance, the way you pitch Scaramanga, you know, he's an assassin. He kills people for money. Sometimes that's enough. You know, it, Red Grant, one of our favorite villains, you know, decidedly not cartoonish, but uh, maybe not simple, but, you know, single-minded. He was pretty much only in it for the money. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been uh, so swayed by those gold sovereigns. But, yeah, all of a sudden now you force a gimmick into the Bond villain where he uses, what is it, like a cigarette, a pen, and a cigarette holder, and a lighter. Oh, yeah, to, to <laughs> assemble the golden gun. And it has to be a golden bullet. Like, he's just so damn rich that he, it just he has to shoot people with a golden bullet just to be a, a dick about it. Like, that's... It's definitely a hallmark of, of the, even under the franchise's latter days. If we're talking about cartoonish and decidedly not simple in this case, we can look at Dying Other Days, Gustav Graves. I think somebody might have brought him up. Did somebody bring him up? I, know. I don't think they did, but they should have because he's dreadful. Uh, yeah, dreadful is the word. And, and again, I think kind of a product there of two different characters maybe being smashed together because Die Another Day is like 25 minutes of a decent Bond movie before it goes completely off the rails. And I think it's for that exact reason why it may, it may garner a little attention tonight. But yeah, Gustav Graves to be, and this speaks a little bit to some of the outmodedness uh, that has dogged Bond's footsteps for far longer than it should have because it's also fairly racist that you've got as I recall, and correct me where I'm wrong, but I believe you have a North Korean soldier who, after being disfigured uh, in an explosion in that earlier part of the film, then comes back as the actor Toby Stevens, who is very much white and British as sort of a counterbond. I mean, let's just go ahead and have some cultural erasure while we're at it. Um, and he's not even a good villain. He can't, I mean, there's nothing justifying this, this sad choice that the movie continues to make time and time again as, it run time, as its runtime drags on. I'm sorry, Gabe. What, a, what about that is not plausible I, I think i think i'm missing something if by the laws of bond physics you may you may be correct 
And just to jump in there really quickly on a more serious note, I also wanted to bring up one other villain that, that may fall into another, the third category, which I, I'll call like the, the lack of execution category. And for that villain, I'll throw in Hugo Drax. So I think like the shell of Hugo Drax is very intriguing. You have this super rich individual. You have the classical music playing in the background. You have the hounds that he has trained so well that he can throw two large pieces of meat on the ground and, and have them wait for the command before they actually eat them. Again, as I said, the shell of the character is intriguing. There, there's something very um, enticing about this person almost. And then just the sort of constant stone face execution of the character is something that I really can never get behind. I, I always, and the name, the name is such, it's, 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 it's a great Bond villain name, but I just can't get behind the actual execution of that villain. Yeah, Hugo Drax is a great name, and Michael Lonsdale, by all accounts, is probably a good actor, but I'm not convinced that character has a pulse in that movie. He's so deadpan and so dull. And Dr. No was deadpan, but not dull. Dr. No was intense. Hugo Drax is just simply dull. I want to go back to the Bond physics for a moment, because if we're going to talk North Korean then being played by a British actor by Bond physics, we then have to somehow solve the equation of Sean Connery in You Only Live Twice somehow becoming Japanese at the end of that movie. I understand it was the 60s, but through no lens does that particular moment age well, or should that have ever been put to screen? I know that Die Another Day made a lot of it being the 20th Bond film, but you'd think that was one of the old references, the throwback to an old film that they could have done without was a second, let's say it again, folks, a second attempt of, uh, and, and this time in reverse of uh, either turning a white actor Asian or turning an Asian actor into a white role. Well, Way to the, go, Neon Productions. Yeah, the four of us are huge fans and believers of fan service. We love when newer era movies harken back to the classics, OG style, to the originals. They throw us a bone but you got to draw the line somewhere. And yeah, that was a line that should have never been crossed in the first place. And then unfortunately got crossed again. And unfortunately it's a line that uh, James Bond movies have crossed more than I think any of us watching them for many, many years now have been comfortable with. When you think about Octopussy and the way Indians or Pakistanis are portrayed there, the, the sort of cliches of the fire juggler and the sword swallower and the, the bed of spikes, you know, the way Bond treats characters of color, particularly the way Bond treats Quarrel in Dr. No. It, it is certainly not a relationship built on equals. Again, 1960s, very different time. That doesn't mean we here in 2020 can't look at it and say, even in 1962, we probably could have done a little bit better. And, and we should ask more of our Bond movies. And I think it's, you know, it's certainly not the only way in which these, you know, when I was rewatching some of these films for the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame, I was constantly asking myself, like, what aged well 
and what did not age well. And, you know, Dan, you talked about some of the racist tendencies that these movies play on, and that certainly didn't age well. And I think some of the misogyny really didn't age well either. You know, one specific moment that I'm thinking of is in terms in, you know, in Moonraker, when Bond is looking for, for um, Dr. Goodhead, and, you know, he, he walks in and he finds who is Dr. Goodhead and says, I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. And she says, you found her. And his response, similarly deadpan, is a woman? In rewatching that, I was, I was slightly heartened by her response to that further on after that. Through the rest of that scene, there, there's a lot. She plays it well in terms of how irritated she is by his response to that. But at the onset is just something that really, really doesn't age well. Years back, I wrote a paper on James Bond for college. Um, it was, uh, there was some sort of project we had to do about examining masculinity so through some sort of cultural framework. So naturally, <laughs> who better to choose than James Bond? Um, and in that, it's worth noting, it took roughly 20, 25 years of Bond filmmaking for the first Bond actor, who I believe was Timothy Dalton, to not hit a woman, whether looking for information or she had just pissed him off or something or whatever the scene demanded. But um, that's a, a, I think since then, uh, unless she's been actively trying to kill him, Bond has refrained from hitting a woman. I'm looking at you, Zenia top. Yeah, since then, you know, at least Daniel Craig has not, uh, has not gone all wife beady. A, a real feather in James Bond's cap over the last yeah. 50, 15 to 20 years. Yeah, no, I, I think unfortunately the, the ages that we are, and, and this behavior, let's just throw it all out there, this behavior is unacceptable in any time, in any place, period. Um, but I think, you know, for us between 30 to late 30s, watching this is very uncomfortable because this behavior is, is so inappropriate. And to think that it was ever conceived of as being mildly tolerable or tolerable at all is, makes it a little tough to consume these movies. I know that our mom was uncomfortable with us at a certain age starting to watch these movies because of some of the messages that these movies conveyed as it related to the way James Bond treats women, the way that he easily beds them. Uh, Roger Moore's Bond um, lands four of them in A View to a Kill. Um, Jordan, you mentioned um, the way that a James Bond character in the Roger Moore era can't possibly fathom a world in which a woman would be a rocket scientist. Yet that's the reality, as it should be. The name play with the women in the series is at times humorous, and Honor Blackman is one of the great Bond women in the canon, but Pussy Galore is an uncomfortable name, as is Plenty O'Toole, which is as ridiculous as James Bond female names get, and man with the golden guns, chew me, no thanks. So there are a lot of issues there. And just when you start to think that James Bond movies have figured it out and we've moved past this, there's that really uncomfortable scene in Skyfall when uh, James Bond, I believe it's, it's Severin, right? We find out that she was abused as a child. She's a converted sex worker, and here's James Bond when she's in the shower, approaching her from behind, looking to do his, you know, Bond business with her. Into her boat, I believe, also. Like, he didn't just walk on a boat. Hi, I'm here to see Severine. No, he snuck onto the boat and just approaches her in the shower. 
Right. So that just when you think we've got it figured out and Skyfall is a great, great, great movie, that scene is uncomfortable. That scene is inappropriate. And we're not trying to get all, all heavy here, but we do need to acknowledge that it is some of this element that takes good Bond movies and knocks them down a peg or two. What you said, Dan, about the naming of the female characters made me think of another scene in another newer and what we would call good, maybe even great James Bond movie, Casino Royale, where they kind of try to treat it as a joke when Bond and Vesper are going over their cover before the Casino Royale poker game. And he says, my name is such and such. And your name is Miss Stephanie Broadchest. And she reacts like, there's no way that's actually my name. And he says, oh, no, you're just going to have to trust me on this. Like, they just can't seem to help themselves. Like, they're trying to make a joke out of it. And it's just like, no, that's, that's something that you need to leave behind. And I think bringing up these later examples is really interesting. I'm going to tie it back into, you know, how Gabe kind of extended this part of the conversation by talking about how he did this essay on studying masculine identity in film. And, you know, it, it just speaks to how ingrained this specific aspect of this specific character is in film in general, that you, you, you get to a point where, we should know better where where we should be more culturally attuned to the inappropriateness that James Bond is presenting and yet he still does. I think part of the problem there, Jay, is that this has been a problem ever since we started watching James Bond movies. It's not like this is something that's isolated to the Roger Moore era. Dan talked about the relationship with Quarrel. Fetch My Shoes is a joke in our family have used around the house with each other for decades. In Goldfinger, when Bond unceremoniously dismisses Dink, another just tremendous name choice uh, w w with a slap on on the bottom and dismisses her with the with the phrase man talk like as scram men are talking like and these are movies that th these are among these are probably the first two James Bond movies that we were shown as kids uh, movies that we have seen dozens of times that we love and you know th there's a certain amount of nostalgia that can turn something like that into an inside joke that we use amongst ourselves, but the origin of it is something extremely problematic. Well, and I think it's something very nuanced. It's something like, like I, Josh, I'm glad that you bring up the, 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 the fact that like there's this joke that we had growing up, but that joke was not based in the level of understanding that we have now. And, and I think that it has presumably been quite a few years since we have used that joke because our understanding now is more nuanced than the presentation of many of these characters ever has been. Well, and that joke, let's just clue the listening audience in. The, the quarrel fetch my shoes joke comes from our dad's inability to gather his own slippers for viewing movies at home. So why in the world do you have three children? It's so that you can have one of them at any given time or 
a nephew in Gabe's case who has also been called upon to fetch the slippers. So that's that's where that comes from. And you know, in looking at the bad Bond movie Hall of Fame, we were going to go down this road because, as I said, these are things that contribute to good Bond movies being ever so slightly not as good. And and Josh, you made the point about they just can't seem to help themselves. And as soon as you said that, I thought about something else that Bond movies just can't seem to help themselves. And it's, I guess what we'll call absurd chase scenes or absurd stunts. Bond movies are filled with chase scenes. Some of them are fantastic. We're not going to focus on those for now. What I want to mention are a couple absurd stunts. I'm going to go back to the man with the golden gun. There's actually a really cool stunt where the car that Bond is driving does sort of a barrel roll in the air across a bridge that's been demolished across the middle. The only problem is that the stupid slide whistle sound effect is going on as the car is doing its barrel roll and it completely crushes this climactic moment. Let's fast forward a few Roger Moore films later. Sorry, Sir Roger Moore, we should acknowledge he's been knighted after all, we're not trying to pick on you. But an octopusy, when he's swinging through the jungle like Tarzan, and I say like Tarzan, because there is that exact sound effect as he is swinging through the jungle. There have been a number of these through the films, and it's moments where, it's not like these are moments of tension, but those are moments in particular where the camp of James Bond just really goes overboard, and it can be a tough pill to swallow at times. Dan, another one of my favorites is in Diamonds Are Forever in the car chase in Las Vegas, where in order to get through a tight alley, Bond has to tip the car onto two wheels, only they screwed up when they were filming the stunt, and he goes into the alley on the left two tires and comes out of the alley on the right two tires, and so they they shot this little insert of Connery and Jill St. John where they tip it you know, 45 degrees, you know, so, so it goes from diagonally one way to diagonally the other way to somehow explain how the the car tips from its left tires to the right tires. Totally absurd, totally unnecessary. They just screwed up the stunt. And if I'm correct, I think that in that scene, Bond also tells her to like lean over such that their 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 body weight together is enough to tip the car in that direction they well, need they, to get into. They do go up. They do go up a little ramp on the the right front tire goes up a little ramp, and then that with the shift of the weight, and that, that that's the problem. Like Dan says with the with the man with the golden gun stunt, like this could have been a good stunt. They just weren't careful enough with how they executed it. If they just had it being that Bond tips a car onto two wheels to get through a tight alley, and then that's how he gets away from this buffoonish Las Vegas policeman, then, okay, that could have been a cool stunt, but they just screwed it up. And I think, in a way, you found a good case study for something that combines some of the uh, sins of Bond movies we've talked about already, and maybe this points the way a little bit toward uh, how we're going to think about some of this. I mean, in this, you've got you know, an attempted stunt, okay, and then you've got a share of silliness from either production laziness or screw-ups, so you've got to find some weird movie to connect these two shots that I bet you if you just stitched together one other way with something in between, 
most people maybe wouldn't notice or be like, oh, I guess that's a continuity error. And then they go right back into the movie. But it also brings in, just to touch back on the misogyny of it all for a second, because, it is, I mean, it's baked into these films. I hate to say it, but how many women in Bond films at all, I mean, I bet we can count on one hand, in fact, the number of women who, had had, who have had any sort of agency in a Bond film. And uh, Jill St. John and Diamonds Are Forever is not one of them. There will be um, a time, I think, to count down probably some of our better Bond characters. But, you know, again, time, it, this is a good example of something that combines a lot of the mistakes. Uh, it's a small thing, but certainly as the movies go on, they, uh, they add up. I'm partial to uh, as far as silly things go. Uh, it's a good movie, but um, the more I think about it, the more I watch it. It's, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the, uh, the cello case chase uh, through the living, uh, the living daylights uh, down into where – there's a country they're trying to get into that escapes me right now. But, yeah, they, they – Austria. Austria, think, yeah. They, they're in a, a, a car chase after Bond has blown up his, uh, his Aston Martin, and they need a way to get away from, I think, now skiing Russian agents – and as they're, yeah, they, they pop open uh, her cello, Olivia Dabo's cello, and uh, there it is. They use the cello as like a rudder to navigate. It's ridiculous. They're getting shot at. And that perfect toss of the cello over the border gate at the end. We have nothing to declare. And see, that's a good, that's just by way of comparison, that they sort of end up earning that bit of fun. You know, that's a good example of that application. The slide whistle, it is not. Yeah, well, and like going back to what we were saying, they just can't help themselves. There's this aspect of one-upsmanship with these stunts that goes all the way through to another I, I i keep ragging on casino royale this is a movie that i really like but the chase scene at the beginning where they have this uh parkour what are they like like an artist or an athlete whatever they have this this parkour guy doing the doing the chase and it's like okay this is cool this is something we haven't seen before but how plausible is it that this bomb maker uh, somewhere in africa would also be a this adept at parkour to be able to do all these moves through a construction site i do think hey i love that that chase scene it may go a little long and i need to revisit casino royale but i've always been a fan of that chase scene however it does go a little over the top i will grant you i do think that actor is one of the um inventors i think of the sport and i think he uh, is like I, I might be wrong about that but it does i think center from the area that he's from and i think that scene actually does work because it's a rare instance where josh to your point about the one-upsmanship that's a rare instance where James Bond does not somehow automatically inherit the abilities of his foe, right? So he's chasing this parkour expert. James Bond doesn't magically and mysteriously some, become some sort of parkour expert. We see him, you know, barreling through, you know, drywall and, and you know, kind of stumbling his way, you know, through this while all while keeping up, you know, in a, in a plausible manner as a, you know, as a secret agent. But I think that's a rare instance where that actually does work. I think there's plenty of others uh, where they don't. I actually kind of like the snowboard chase at the beginning of A View to a Kill, except, oh. and for reasons unknown, oh. California girls. Exactly. Starts bland, like, why, why, why? You've got John Barry at the helm. He can give you some nice dramatic chase music. And again, we're going to use this phrase a lot. They just can't seem to help themselves. You know, Dan, speaking of John Barry, it makes me think of one other thing that comes to mind for me in terms of 
the common flaws or maybe the common shortcomings of these bad bomb movies. And for me, it's the, it's the songs that they, they just don't quite measure up in terms of some of the great other Bond songs. You know, obviously the great ones of Thunderball, Goldfinger, like those are the, those are the all-time greats. But some of the ones that just fall a little bit short, um, The World Is Not Enough by Garbage. And that is not me saying that the artist's name is Garbage, that the artist is Garbage. The artist's name is Garbage. Uh, Man with the Golden Gun by Lulu. Fun fact, Alice Cooper also submitted a potential uh, song for Man with the Golden Gun. You should give it a listen. It's better, but I don't think that's really saying much at all. John Barry is also on record as saying that that is his least favorite theme. And if John Barry is going to say it, then I feel like we've got to believe him. And then also License to Kill being another one where, um, interestingly, the royalties had, royalties had to be paid to the writers of Goldfinger because they had stolen so much. For it. Now, I will say Gladys Knight pretty much single-handedly saves that song. But the rest of it is, it, you know, as I said, the rest of it really doesn't measure up. I've always liked License to Kill. Big sauce spot for that song. I also think The World Is Not Enough is an underrated. It's not the best, but I think it's solidly middle of the pack. So certainly nowhere near as bad as The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah, Man with the Golden Gun is, it's, it's catchy too, is, 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 is among the problem. And Dan, you mentioned the, the slide whistle. That's actually on the soundtrack. That, that slide whistle part. So you, you just can't get away from it, whether you're watching the movie or just trying to listen to the music that, that blasted slide whistle is still there. Unbelievable. Um, so now that we've gotten uh, a, a fair picture of what all these common flaws are in the James Bond movies, we're going to move on to our two point question. But before we do that, I am going to uh, award a, a point for this one point question. And it's going to go to the person who coined the phrase James Bond physics, because they do seem to be operating in their own world much of the time, which, which contributes to a lot of these flaws as they think they can just do whatever they want to do. So Gabe, Congratulations with, with coining that phrase. You get the one point for the one point question. I'm gratified. Thank you very much. I, I feel like I've just moved up into, into license to kill status. I've been granted my double O. Well, you, you, you are section chief. You would know. Um, so, so moving on to the two point question, this is where we are going to do our, our nominations for the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. The way this is going to work is each dork is going to nominate two films. Now, each film is going to have to come from a different James Bond actor. That's the one sort of rule that I'm instituting on here, just so we don't end up with all Roger Moores. As you could probably tell, he's not our favorite uh, 007. As I stated before, uh, these are neither the best James Bond movies, nor are they the worst James Bond movies. They're probably not going to end up in anybody's top 10 list, uh, but they're probably also not going to end up dead last either. Um, as it is the two-point question, when each dork nominates their first James Bond movie to be inducted into the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame, I want two good things about the movie and two bad things about the movie. 
And uh, since Gabe, before the podcast, you bribed me with a uh, lovely Fabergé egg, you get to go first and make the first nomination for the Dorkfest Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. I'm thinking about it, and uh, there are a couple of ways I could go with this. There, there's some, there's some ripe movies out there for the pick. And my first nomination, uh, I'm going to go a little more recent. My first nomination for the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame is going to be the 2017 installment Spectre, Daniel Craig's most recent up until uh, No Time to Die, which has, of course, been postponed due to coronavirus. For Spectre, I, you know, I'll give a couple of good things. It's a gorgeous movie. It's, uh, I think Daniel Craig turns in uh, maybe his most fun performance yet. He's, I think, for himself, tapping a little bit into the, of the, into the Roger Moreisms. And while I never thought I'd hear myself say this, my God, it actually kind of works. It gets out a little under from the, uh, the doom and gloom of the previous installments. And it tries to stake its own ground. You know, it, it's, it's Bond operating in the classic sphere in which we've usually seen him. Um, as for the negatives here... It just doesn't quite translate through the whole movie. Uh, last time I, I checked this out, somewhat recently, the impression I was left with, was left with was that it was a movie that's a collection of pretty good scenes all stitched together. It doesn't really flow. Uh, individual scenes might sort of work, and you come out of that thinking like, all right, cool, that's, that's something. This movie does fall prey to one of our, uh, you know, Dan, as you pointed out, even in Skyfall, uh, otherwise a pretty respectable film. Uh, Bond pulls one of those uh, classic bits of misogyny with, with Severine. Uh, he does the same thing with Monica Bellucci's character after her husband's funeral, who we should also mention he killed. Uh, so yeah, that, that um, uh, turning on the charm on a widow, a uh, new widow is not uh, Bond's classiest move there. So Spectre loses on a lot of counts. I want to say most because um, it really also tries to shoehorn in a family subplot with relating Bond to the evil and trying to tie in the movies that came together and, that in other hands, maybe had the movie been a little more focused, it could have pulled off, but here it doesn't because it wants to be a million different things. It's sort of a low-key version of what Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, had to be for Warner Brothers at that point. I think Spectre's trying to low-key be a lot of things to a lot of people, and it doesn't pull it off. Exactly the type of movie that we want for these nominations. Gabe, great job getting us started. Jordan, you're up next. So for the second nomination, I'm going to be going to a Pierce Brosnan movie, um, one that I mentioned earlier uh, because of its song that I find a little bit underwhelming. Um, and that would be The World Is Not Enough. In terms of, you know, what it has going for it or, you know, sort of, as I said earlier, what ages really, really well, this is, of course, the, the movie where we unfortunately have to say goodbye to Desmond Llewellyn as Q. Um, and that scene is, is, is touching. It, that scene is, is beautifully crafted. You know, his last line, always have an escape plan. While the rest of that movie leaves a lot to be desired, that one scene, to me, leaves nothing to be desired. So that, I think, in and of itself is a really, really great scene um, in that movie and, and something that ages well. Another character that ages well is Sokovsky, played by Robbie Coltrane. You know, you have, you know, just a very humorous character who is sort of a villain but then turns ally um and is both sort of made fun of by bond but then also makes fun of other characters like just a very very well played character in terms of that so that for me those are two things that really age well in terms of the world is not enough in terms of what doesn't age well i talked earlier about desmond llewellyn aging well john cleese does not age well as you and, and and part of that is you know impossible shoes to follow so i'll, I'll give him that 
That said, it's painful to have to watch that after Desmond Malone. Um, and then also for me, the idea of a, a villain who can't feel anything is, is, is cool, but it's ridiculous. Like the fact that this guy has this bullet that is slowly making its way through his head, but hasn't killed him yet, but is just shutting off all of his nerves. Like, okay, maybe they did some research and scientifically it's plausible, but I just feel like it's a little bit too ridiculous to be taken seriously. Jay, again, exactly what I had in mind with this. I think that's another one of these movies that's 25 minutes of a good James Bond movie, and then it just slowly, or maybe not so slowly, but just unravels after that. Uh, Dan, how about your first nomination? All right, you guys have selected more recent offerings. I'm going to hop in the Wayback Machine and nominate Diamonds Are Forever into the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. For a number of the movies that I outlined as possibilities, I created pros and cons lists. The pros list for Diamonds Are Forever is, spoiler alert, not nearly as long as the cons list, but there are some quality pros to Diamonds Are Forever. First and foremost, Sean Connery as James Bond. Yes, I mentioned earlier in this episode that he's getting up there in age and he becomes less believable as, you know, this super spy secret agent. But it's still OG Bond. It's still Sean Connery back as James Bond, living life, and it's good. The title song, a very memorable title song, Shirley Bassey at the helm, Great title song. And I'll even give you one more point, a bonus pro from Diamonds Are Forever. And that is the specific scene, the close quarters elevator fight between Bond and Peter Franks. That is an actually cool and legitimate fight scene that very quickly, you know, goes off the rails because Tiffany Case shows up not long thereafter and the movie basically takes a nosedive from that point on. So those are a couple of points in Diamonds Are Forever's favor. Unfortunately, the cons list is a little bit longer. Uh, we will begin with the aforementioned Tiffany Case, played by Jill St. John, and who is about as vapid and uninteresting a Bond girl as the series has offered. And that's really saying something. Uh, the character of Willard White, as played by Jimmy Dean, you can skip through any scene in which that character is in. I wish he was the one who had been fired instead of Burt Saxby. Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid. Jordan, you mentioned maybe being a little progressive with those guys, and that's all fine and good, except it's a little uncomfortable at the end when the one gets killed by effectively what amounts to the world's most destructive atomic wedgie and appears to kind of enjoy it a little too much. So that part is not ideal. I, I can do without that. I think structurally for this movie, it just comes off the rails though, right from the very beginning. The prior film on Her Majesty's Secret Service ends in heartbreak. Bond has married you know, Tracy Bond is murdered shortly after their wedding. We have all the time in the world. That's what you're left with. And the next movie spends about 30 seconds addressing that and then just promptly moves right the heck on as Blofeld gets 
clocked on the noggin and then down into the mud pit he goes, welcome to hell, Blofeld. And then into the song and we just completely bypassed that any of that important stuff happened. Again, I think there's some redeeming parts to the movie, but not altogether a tremendous two hour watch. Especially the last uh, 30, 40 minutes of that movie uh, just makes you question what, what, what you're doing to yourself, sticking with that movie for that long. For my first nomination, I am, I am going to go with our, uh, the, the, the Bond actor that we love to hate, and that's Roger Moore, and I'm going to nominate Moonraker. I think that this is the most over-the-top Bond movie that there has ever been. Every interaction, every plot point, every storyline, every character is dialed up to 11. And sometimes it works, sometimes it really doesn't. Uh, The two times that I want to point out where it really does work, I think the action scenes in this movie are actually really, really good. The cable car fight with Jaws, I think, is really good. Bond wrestling a python, I think, is is pretty fun. And the uh, the space battle at the end. And I do think that this is Roger Moore at his coolest Bond, potentially. He does an awful lot of silly stuff, but there are some, you know, some of those deadpan glances that he gives in this, in this movie that, that really do make you feel like, okay, this guy is cool enough to be James Bond. Like, I am getting into this. Um, in terms of what doesn't work well, Jaws does not work well. It doesn't work. He doesn't work well in the beginning when his parachute doesn't work and he's trying to flap his arms and attempt to fly uh, and then falls through a circus big top, miraculously survives, to then fall in love with some blonde girl uh, with pigtails at the end of the movie. Jaws really doesn't work. And the other thing that I think really doesn't work as a in the storytelling is that they essentially carbon copied the previous movie spy who loved me and just set it in space. You have a maniacal villain trying to kill everybody and recreate his own society. Only Hugo Drax is doing it from space uh, instead of Stromberg doing it from underwater. So um, plenty that doesn't work about Moonraker, but also plenty that makes it fun. And that's why I am nominating it. So to recap, we've our first four nominations are Gabe nominating Spectre, Jordan nominating The World Is Not Enough, Dan nominating Diamonds Are Forever, and my nomination was Moonraker. A quick note about some of the stuff we've talked about with the nominations. Dan, your criticism of Willard White is actually one of the only things in that movie that I do enjoy. Uh, and it's it's some of these, some of this witty dialogue. I, or maybe not witty, <laughs> that might be uh, being too generous, but amusing dialogue, let's say. You know, when Burt Saxby is shot and Willard White says, tell him he's fired, that's one of my favorite parts of that movie. Uh, another great line is uh, Felix Leiter saying, a, a mouse with sneakers on couldn't get through. I, I, these, these really amusing lines in that movie and like like you say it's not a good movie but i i actually find those amusing and i can appreciate that feedback and as we kind of look back on the the first round 
I just want to make a quick point as it relates to your nomination of Moonraker, which I feel like is about as low hanging fruit as one could pull off the bad Bond movie tree. One of my favorite scenes in that movie, and I use the word favorite extremely sarcastically, is the gondola car chase scene when Bond's gondola comes up on land in some sort of hover fashion. That's when we do have the infamous double-take pigeon, which some editing genius cobbled that bad boy together. That's intermixed with the tourist who questions his bottle of wine. Could he possibly be seeing this gondola on land? And then the waiter who's pouring the water onto the ground because he's not paying attention to what he's doing. You said it. Moonraker takes everything Bond and ramps it up to 11. And in that scene, they ramped it up to 1100. Gabe, I guess it'll be left to the, the two cousins to, to talk about the one destiny of the films that they selected. With, uh, with Spectre, what you had brought up, you know, I was interested by the fact that you brought that because for me, that, that was just a bad movie. So that, that was a movie that didn't really enter my list in terms of movies that I was considering. In terms of how you pointed out how beautifully it was filmed, it made me think, you know, about the opening scene and how, you know, that's all filmed nonstop. And, and and you saying that had reminded me that, you know, okay, maybe it's just the first five minutes of it. Uh, but those first five minutes are cinematically wonderful to look at, even if narratively it's very difficult, nay, impossible to consume throughout the rest of it. Uh, I'm very happy to uh, give you that point. I think it could be uh, up for consideration on just a straight bad movie list. Um, I've been there with that movie as well, but I, I, I gave it a, a bit of a rewatch a while, a while back just to see if it was as bad as I remember, and it mostly was. But yeah, I, I thought I had, there's a few things to give credit to in that, in that movie. That's where we want to be with these, with these lists. We don't want to be totally comfortable recommending that someone actually watch them, but we, we, we remain firm in our convictions that they are, that there is something redeemable about them as a James Bond movie, if nothing else. Well, and to that point, I just want to uh, note that I have some brief issue with uh, with Jordan's selection of World is Not Enough, which I've always thought, again, it's kind of an underrated, uh, at, at times, not saying the whole thing is, is gold standard Bond work by any stretch, but um, I think there's some fun twists in there as far as things that Pierce Brosnan had to do in his era to sort of modernize and keep the franchise going. I think he's at his maybe his charming best in that one, um, having gotten to do the debut thing and then the just straight action movie with Tomorrow Never Dies. And now he sort of gets to be the gentleman spy again a little bit. And I think Sophie Marceau turns in a, a, a great performance uh, as Electra, who is, um, I think, maybe just short of a classically great character. Again, had things gone a little differently. But hey, no, we got some drama up in here. This is great. Denise Richards is rough, though. Uh, yes. Yeah, Jordan, I'm afraid that your chances of garnering the two points from this question went out the window when you didn't mention Christmas Jones in 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 the the, the negatives. But hey, we, we've got round two, so let's see if you can claw back a little bit. Gabe, you're going to start us off again with your second nomination for the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. Uh, I think I will continue in my somewhat modern trend here and I'm going to lean toward uh, much as I just defended the world is not enough I'm now going to throw die another day completely under the invisible bus 
Die Another Day is a movie that I think I said it earlier. It's got it's like 20, 25 minutes of a good Bond movie. Maybe charitably, like the first act is decent enough to watch. Um, and then it kind of just goes off the rails and it's content to keep running wild. Um, and yeah, I mean, Spectre sort of managed to keep itself somewhat contained after a great opening sequence. Uh, Dying of the Day basically manages to do all that and maybe a little more. And then it's the kitchen sink approach to Bond and everything wrong from the last 20 years ends up getting thrown into this movie. Um, I think you've got a good score from David Arnold uh, doing some of his better Bond work. I think, again, you've got... Uh, some fine, you know, Pierce Brosnan is, I think, starting to show that he's getting tired of this now. There's not a whole lot of great stuff to say about this movie. They didn't even make an N64 game for it, or a GameCube one, as I recall. That's how you know it was bad. Yeah, Brosnan was getting tired of it, and I was pretty tired of it pretty quickly. Oh, and uh, look, yeah, uh, the increasingly appalling sound, uh, the, the increasingly appalling title track from Madonna. Not a good showing, not her best, not the series, not a franchise best. Only good thing about it was uh, I'm always a sucker for a incontinuity Bond credit scene. There are a few. Yeah, I got a level with you, Gabe. That 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 movie is um, jockeys for position with one other Bond movie at, on the on the very bottom rung of my of my rankings. Um, I do think there is a little fun to be had in this movie. Um, yeah, it, it, most recently I didn't put it all the way down at the bottom, so I, I will give you that. So just because it gets so absurd, that's kind of the only thing that keeps it from being on the, again, I, I'm teetering on the edge again, but uh, I think there's a few just absurdities that keep this movie from falling totally into the bad Bond category. Absurdities, indeed. How about, how about some more absurdity, Jay? So for my second nomination, I'm going to be going back to the Roger Moore well, um, and I will be nominating The Man with the Golden Gun. This is a movie that I will admit I have a real, real soft spot for. The, even the song, I mean, Josh, you pointed out the catchiness of it uh, earlier in this podcast. It's a bad song. The lyrics are not even almost, they are pornographic in nature and very uncomfortable, but there's still just something so catchy about it. And I watched it earlier this week, and darn if I haven't been singing that song the entire week since then. Now, in terms of things in this movie that I think actually do age well. When I when we were talking earlier about the villain of Francisco Scaramanga, one thing that I thought of actually harking back to an earlier podcast that we did when we talked about the Marvel Marvel villains and how the Marvel villains were sort of the mirror images of some of the heroes. And it made me think that in some ways Francisco Scaramanga is very much the mirror image of Bond. He's just as talented, he's just as adept, just as, adept as Bond is. He simply does it for money where Bond does it for king and country. So I think that dynamic is very, very interesting. And I think a real redeeming part of the man with the golden gun. And then I think also there's something a little bit refreshing about getting away from the world domination narrative. The, the basic storyline to begin with is just that Scaramanga is hunting Bond, that he wants to be able to kill him. So there's something refreshing about that storyline being something that carries it through. And also something that I think is refreshing or at the very least different about the opening of Man with the Golden Gun, it's perhaps the only one that doesn't have Bond in the opening sequence at all. Sure, it has the, you know, sort of puppet of him at the end in Scaramanga's, you know, funhouse or whatever it is, but the actor of James Bond is not present in it in it at all. That said, 
couple of things that really, really don't age well. I talked about some of the things that do age well by Francisco Scaramanga. That jumpsuit that he's wearing at the very beginning does not age so well. Uh, Christopher Lee, he tried to pull it off. He did his best. I know maybe it worked in the 70s, but I, I, I just don't quite know so much. And then a little bit more seriously, going back to some of the misogyny that we talked about earlier in the podcast, the aggression that Bond shows towards Miss Anders um, is really, really uncomfortable. I mean, it's the first interaction that they're having together. He's interrogating her, is trying to get information from her. Um, and that scene is just really, really uncomfortable to watch, especially now. But I, I would hope that even then it would have been uncomfortable to watch. So with that in mind, um, while I do have a soft spot in my heart for this film, there are certainly quite a few things uh, beyond even what I just listed that make it a less than redeeming film. Uncomfortable moments aplenty in that movie, uh, Jay. Dan, how about your next nomination? Um, okay, so I selected a Sean Connery movie with my first choice. That was a strategic move, leaving myself a variety of Roger Moore offerings to choose from here in round number two. I find myself torn between two Roger Moore films in particular. One I deem good, the other I deem bad. And as this is the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame, I'm going with the latter, and I'm going to nominate A View to a Kill into the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. Now, points in favor of A View to a Kill. The title song by Duran Duran is excellent. It can be played on its own, outside of enjoying a Bond film, and be enjoyed, and it is really enjoyed when they rip into it after the pre-credit sequence in A View to a Kill. On can top even be of that, enjoyed at one's wedding. That's correct. That's right. Can also be enjoyed at one's wedding indeed. Staying on that musical note, it is another John Barry score. And I actually think that the title song themes really well uh, thematically into the movie. And I think it actually hits a really nice orchestral peak when Bond is, you know, carrying uh, Tanya Roberts down the, the, fire, the fire ladder out of the burning building. I mean, that scene, you know, whatever, Roger Moore's 57 and Tanya Roberts is, is really annoying, basically from start to finish. But that scene has some gravitas and some, some drama to it, thanks in large part to the score. Another point in its favor, Christopher Walken, as Mac Zorin. And on top of that, they're tete-a-tete atop the Golden Gate Bridge. Some serious points in favor of A View to a Kill. Now, unfortunately, there are a number of negatives with this film as well. Uh, I mentioned Christopher Walken as Mac Zorin is a plus. Unfortunately, Max Zorin as Mac Zorin is a negative. The character is not terribly well-defined. It's like they threw a whole bunch of ingredients for a sociopath into a blender, hit high speed, and then poured whatever came out of that into the script for this movie. He's just kind of all over the map. Earlier in the pod, we already talked about the aging Roger Moore. Look, he's 57 years old. He's doing his best, but probably should have shut it down at least two, if not three movies before that. As a result, some of the chase scenes really look labored. The Eiffel Tower chase scene looks labored as a result of that. 
And then I've already mentioned the pre-credit snowboard chase, which I think is cool until there's that horrible California girls moment. So it has pros, it has cons. And with that, I think it makes for a perfect nomination into the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. Yeah, Moore is in full creepy old man mode throughout that movie. And uh, Dan, I'm, I'm overjoyed that, that, that you nominated it. And I'm going to clo- close out our nominations with You Only Live Twice. A couple of good things about this movie. It's Sean Connery. Sean Connery as James Bond can only get so bad as Dan elucidated with his Diamonds Are Forever nomination. And this is an even better version of that until we get a little too deep into the samurai transformation effort. Fortunately, he comes out of that and has a couple of uh, legitimately solid interactions with Blofeld, uh, played by Donald Pleasance. Um, now I'm going to spin into a negative. We finally get the big reveal of Blofeld and it's kind of this, dare I say, sniveling Donald Pleasant's <laughs> uh, performance. Um, something that we talked about in that villains podcast, as, as we've gone back to a couple of times, we talked about how sometimes we don't totally buy that a villain is as menacing as he's supposed to be. And I think Donald Pleasance falls short. Uh, in that category. Another positive thing about You Only Live Twice is I think the action sequences in this one, again, are pretty good. The Little Nelly helicopter fight is fun, and the whole fight at Kobe Docks, where they, it's, it's an aerial shot of this uh, orchestrated fight scene with Connery weaving around and fighting a whole bunch of uh, guys at, at, at this dock place was just an interesting way of shooting that. And whenever I see that scene and John Barry is just really at a hundred percent with this score too. So you only live twice is going to cap out our nominations for round two. An excellent closer. I would just like to quickly pass along a couple of thoughts based on some of the nominations that I heard. Josh, You Only Live Twice was actually on my list for consideration, but I deemed that movie too good to be nominated into the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame for many of the reasons that you mentioned. And I think you may have missed one of the best parts of that movie. And Gabe mentioned this name earlier, Ken Adam. Uh, The secret volcano lair set is probably the best single set in James Bond franchise history. So huge points in the favor of You Only Live Twice, but two huge points against another movie that was mentioned in round two, Jordan. You really miss the boat when being able to truly and fully sink the man with the golden gun by failing to mention in the negative category, the return of J.W. Pepper for reasons unknown in that movie, why he comes back at all is just a true head scratcher. And you talked about uh, Bond with Miss Andrews and how uncomfortable that is. Any scene involving Mary Goodnight is uncomfortable because Britt Eklund is just, it's a train wreck character from start to finish. You haven't even in mentioned my defense, I, in my defense. I is terrible too. In in my defense, Josh at the onset of this question asked for two. 
two negative points. I provided him with two negative points. It's not my fault that there are more than two bad things about that movie. Cannot argue his logic. Fair enough. Fair enough. And um, these uh, these two points that have been bandied about now have to have to land somewhere. And I am going to end up awarding them to Dan for essentially exclusively for his nomination of a view to a kill. Um, this is a such a guilty pleasure movie for me. Um, I, I think it perfectly epitomizes what this whole exercise thought experiment was in my head when I was dreaming it up. So two points there to Daniel. Congratulations to you. Much appreciated. I had to make sure that A View to a Kill got nominated. I know one of our uh, truest fans of the pod is, of course, our father. And I don't actually know if I'll get brownie points or get ribbing from him for including A View to a Kill, but there it is. It's in there. Well, that's the beauty of this exercise is that you, you, could, you can have it both ways. You can criticize it. But, hey, also, it's, it's in a Hall of Fame. That's got to be good, right? This isn't the Hall of Shame. Nobody nominated Live and Let Die. Like, there, there's a reason that these movies are coming up. All right, so moving into the three-point question, folks, this is where we are actually going to induct four movies into this bad bond movie hall of fame we're going to take our eight nominations and pare it down to four there is one rule in these inductions that each dork gets to select one and they can't select a movie that they nominated gabe it turns out that the fabergé egg that you bribed me with before the podcast is actually a fake so in retaliation you're gonna go last and jordan you are gonna get the first induction into the Dorkfest bad bond movie hall of fame i might give it back if you beat me at backgammon but it's gonna have a little bug in it so be careful I don't know what you're talking about. Certainly, they don't make technology that small that could that could conceivably fit inside the heel of one shoe. <laughs> what era are we living in? Is this the future? All right, let's get it back on track. Jordan, you get the first induction. As a reminder, you cannot induct The World Is Not Enough and The Man with the Golden Gun, as those were your two nominations. Please induct from the other six nominations into the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. So I'm tempted to induct A View to a Kill simply because I think that that might garner me the three points because Josh seems to love that movie so much and with good reason, especially the song, just a fantastic song. Again, as mentioned, great at weddings too. But I am actually going to be inducting Diamonds Are Forever into the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. In terms of some things that really, really age well about this, as we've already mentioned, the song is fantastic. One thing that wasn't mentioned when Dan was, you know, so eloquently and so and in such detailed fashion talking about the greatness of Diamonds Are Forever. One thing he didn't mention was how excellent Bernard Lee is as M early on in that film. I'm reminded of one specific scene early on where Bond is talking to him and Bond asks him a question like, do you know who his contacts are? And M's response is, we do function in your absence. And it's just this great little like, this great little snarky retort 
um, from him. So I, I think, you know, Diamonds Are Forever really encapsulates so many of those things that are great and enjoyable about James Bond, but are also so painful to watch, like that really, really weird, not enjoyable mud scene at the beginning, as Dan already mentioned. Welcome to hell, Blowfield. I didn't know that hell was muddy, but I guess in Bond's world it is. So with that in mind, first induction in the bad Bond movie Hall of Fame, Diamonds Are Forever. Excellent choice, Jordan. Dan, you're up next. I'm not going to waste any time, and I'm going to induct Moonraker into the bad Bond movie Hall of Fame, nominated by Josh. And this was the film that instantly sprung to my mind when we first started tossing about the idea of doing a Bad Bond movie Hall of Fame podcast. We've already talked about some of the ridiculous nature of this movie, a relatively lifeless villain, a henchman that goes cartoony and comic-y for no reason, all the classic Bond antics ramped up about as high as they've ever gone, but there's so many good things in this movie as well. You've got a tremendous title song from Shirley Bassey. You've got another tremendous John Barry score, the flight into space scene, the space laser battle, those great themes. You've got some pretty cool effects too for the 1970s. Sure, it's no Star Wars. And yes, this movie was rushed into production as a result of the success of Star Wars, but it's Bond in space. That's pretty cool. And Dr. Holly Goodhead, ridiculous name aside, is actually a Bond girl character that can do some stuff. And those are in relatively short supply. So they get points there. The pre-credit sequence is a bit goofy, but it's also action-packed and kind of fun. And most importantly, the end of an era. Jordan mentioned Bernard Lee as M. This would be his final installment in the Bond franchise. A really nice we didn't know it at the time, but a really nice final scene between him and Roger Moore. And so with that, I induct Moonraker into the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. Great choice, Dan. I'm going to go with another Roger Moore. No surprise, I'm going to induct A View to a Kill. As I said, this is a guilty pleasure movie for me. Gabe, I need to hear it once. Give me a Project Main Strike. Project Main Strike. Uh, <laughs> Anybody else uh, want to drop out? <laughs> Christopher Walken is a delight to watch as Max Zorin. But I think that even though Roger Moore is ancient in this film, there are a couple of moments where he plays that to his advantage. He has a really nice scene with Lois Maxwell as Moneypenny, where they're bantering back and forth, and you really get the impression that this has been a long-term friendship over many years where they both respect one another. That's a scene that I really like, and I absolutely love Bond giving it to Tibbet at the, at the Chateau, playing it up as to convince them all of the, that he is... James St. John Smythe, this, you know, arrogant British guy who is attempting to buy a horse, but you can tell he's just enjoying giving it to Tibbet, and we as an audience get to enjoy it too. We've gone over so many of the bad things about this movie. The plot makes very little sense. Uh, 
if any. Uh, pretty much everything after that chateau, after you leave that French chateau, is really difficult to watch. But th this is what I was thinking of, so I am thrilled to be able to induct uh, A View to a Kill into the Bad Bond Movie Hall of Fame. Gabe, what's the fourth and final installment? You know, th these are some great um, additions and certainly worthy nominee, uh, worthy inductees, I should say, into the hall here. And I'm curious as to what should join their moderate, the, the moderate terribleness that put them there. <sighs> I'm torn. And, I, you know, at the end of the day, we, we joke a lot about uh, Roger Moore, but he's, uh, he was Bond more and for longer than uh, just about anybody. So I think I'm going to ease off on him here. And my final in, uh, induction will be You Only Live Twice. Because uh, this is, there's a lot to enjoy about this movie. I think also, I, Dan, yeah, the Ken Adam design inside the volcano lair. I mean, this is, with a couple of exceptions, this is the movie that also gives us Austin Powers. It gives us Dr. Evil. It gives us all things that we're going to be making fun of for about James Bond for the next 50 years. And that the assault on the volcano lair in the end, that's a, that's a pretty exciting scene. There's a lot of, again, some fun stuff in The Only Live Twice, but this is also where the tried and true to that point Connery formula really starts to show the cracks. Uh, it gets a little punnier. It gets a little more gadget-driven, although the, uh, the rocket-powered cigarette is, a, is a, still to this day a nice touch. And I think, too, you know, a little bit of... Um, Josh, what you called out of, uh, of Blofeld's um, squirreliness. I can't re quite recall the, the word you used, um, but he's just kind of, he, he's not really threatening when you finally get to him. And I think, yeah, maybe that's a mistake, but it, it's also kind of interesting, I guess, in a way, you know, you, that sort of uh, brain versus brawn sort of thing. They like throwing 007 at either his equal or his opposite. And uh, that's sort of what happened here. And the white cat remains iconic. And it's uh, I think there's just enough good going on there to offset the pretty considerable uh, slow pacing and racism that goes on uh, over the course of the rest of, uh, of the movie. And it's a pretty nice uh, tune track, uh, uh, title track by Nancy Sinatra. Dorks, I feel so good about the, the four movies that we have selected. Diamonds Are Forever, Moonraker, A View to a Kill, and You Only Live Twice. You cannot assemble a group of Bond movies with higher highs and and lower lows. I mean, we, we, we you you can pick, you know, five minute clips out of each of these movies that would be in Bond highlight reels, and also they can they contain some of the absolute worst that James Bond has to offer. Tremendous, tremendous job, dorks. I am tempted to award the final three points for this question to myself as I had both of my nominations selected as inductees. But the real winner, I think we can all agree, is Ian Fleming's estate, which continues to cash in even as they make subpar movie after subpar movie and cannot help themselves but to make ridiculous choices and completely unrealistic premises and a really vile excuse for a human being into an action hero. And we will still fork over our money for it each and every time and spend hours extolling their virtues, even when we know the movies aren't any good. So Ian Fleming's estate, congratulations. You are the winner for this episode of Dork Fest, the podcast. 
But seriously, did you hear that Billie Eilish tune for No Time to Die? Not bad, right? I bet this one's going to be good. Thank you so much for accompanying us on this top secret mission here on Dorkfest, the podcast. A reminder to please return this podcast to Q Branch in pristine order. And also rate, review, subscribe, follow, place a homing device on this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, perhaps the Carver Media Group, wherever you enjoy your podcasts. You can also keep tabs on us on Instagram. That's uh, dorkfest underscore podcast. Thanks again, and we will see you next time when Dorkfest the podcast returns. Good to see you, Mr. Bond. Things have been awfully dull around here. Bureaucrats running the whole place, everything done by the book. Can't make a decision unless the computer gives you the go-ahead. Now you're on this. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. Well, I certainly hope so, too.